welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're continuing the series in the book of Colossians called Jesus Underestimated. We've said that people underestimate who Jesus is, what he did, and what's possible in a life with him. This series looks at what happens when Jesus is back in the place he deserves in our lives. Today, we're looking at how Jesus restores paradise on earth. And I think we're all agreed that restoring paradise on earth is something we all need help with, right? I think Larry King expressed this pretty honestly. Larry King passed away last year, but he was famous for his interviews. Over the course of his career, he interviewed more than 60,000 people and picked up plenty of awards and even a Guinness World Record along the way. In his career, King was wildly successful, but his home life was a different story. He was married and divorced eight times to seven different women. When asked about it, he said, questions about my marriages and divorces always take me to the same place. I once asked Stephen Hawking, the smartest guy in the world, what he didn't understand. He said, women. The smartest guy in the world couldn't understand them. What do you expect from me? Well, I don't know about you. I think his answer is a little insulting. It seems to place the blame for his marriages on women just being impossible to understand. And I don't think that's fair. But I would agree that even the smartest people in the world don't have the answers to how to build a strong marriage. The same is true for parents bond with their children and the struggle to find purpose and meaning in work. I'm convinced that we need Jesus for those challenges. And today's passage shows how Jesus helps us to meet them. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. I'll read to chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Colossians 3, starting at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. Now, this isn't the kind of passage that's very popular to read today. If you read it uncarefully, there's something to offend almost everyone. But it contains revolutionary teaching designed to transform our lives and our society. It shows us how Jesus undoes the patriarchy, the anarchy, and the tyranny of our world. Let's start with the first section and see how Jesus undoes the patriarchy. As I read through the passage, it probably struck you as a little abrupt. Wives do this, husbands do that, children do this, fathers don't do that. While it sounds blunt to us, it was actually a common form in the first century called a household code. And Greek philosophers and ethical thinkers of the day would try to lay out a plan for the good life. 
And it's only as you compare what Paul says with the forms of his day that you can really appreciate what's going on. Typically, the household code would be addressed to the man and tell him what to do with his wife, his children, and his slaves in order to enjoy peace and success. Paul copies the form, but puts it on his head. First of all, the instructions all flow out of verse 17, where Paul says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then, instead of telling the man what to do with his wife, children, and servants, he addresses each person individually. Notice he never tells the men to make the women, children, or slaves do anything. As you're listening this morning, no elbows to your spouse or stern looks to your teenagers. Everybody's supposed to focus on their own stuff. Now, if you know that these codes were usually addressed only to the men, what do you think was going on in their mind as he not only calls out each group, but addresses the wives first and then the husbands? He speaks to the children first and then the fathers, and he speaks to the servants first and then to the masters. Paul's deliberately confronting the king of the castle mentality of the men and lifting up and honoring those who are often pulled down and disregarded. When Christ rules in the home, any superiority of one person over another is out of bounds. Christ is king in the home now, and each person is treated with dignity and given their own role and calling. When Jesus is in charge, he undoes the patriarchy. But not in the way that the world does. The world seems to eliminate authority, but Jesus instead transforms it. So, for instance, in verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, the Collins English Dictionary defines submission as a state in which people can no longer do what they want to do because they have been brought under the control of someone else. If you bring that definition to this word, then submission is an ugly thing. But that's not what's being described here at all. It's not about control, but willingly supporting the leadership of another. It never says, wives are supposed to be dominated by their husbands. That's patriarchy. Instead, wives are invited to willingly submit to their husbands, not because they're inferior, not because they're controlled, but because Jesus says that it's right. That's what as is fitting in the Lord means. And Jesus himself defines what submission is. He's the one who, being equal with God, submitted to the Father. He willingly chose to follow the Father's plan. And it didn't come with an ounce of inferiority. But it wasn't always easy for him either. I remember reading this verse with a seminary student. And I asked him how he thought it should be applied today. And he said, I don't know how it applies today. All I know is how women in Asia Minor living in the first century were supposed to apply it. He was basically saying, this is out of date and out of touch. We can ignore what it says. We know better now. But we don't. On our own, we don't know any more than Larry King or Stephen Hawking. I love how Rebecca McLaughlin responds to this command. She wrote this, it used to repulse me. Now it convicts me and calls me toward Jesus, the true husband who satisfies my needs the one man who truly deserves my submission. She said, I've been married for a decade and I'm not naturally submissive. I'm naturally leadership oriented. 
I hold a PhD and a seminary degree, and I am the trained debater in the family. Thank God I married a man who celebrates this. Yet it's a daily challenge to remember my role in this drama and notice opportunities to submit to my husband as to the Lord. Not because I'm naturally more or less submissive or because he is more or less naturally loving, but because Jesus went to the cross for me. Jesus undoes all that's ugly about marriage when wives gladly support their husband's leadership out of devotion to Christ. Husbands are up next in verse 19. There it just says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. They haven't found a single household code in antiquity with a command for husbands to love their wives. They were all catered to men and their needs. The idea that men had a responsibility to love and care for their wives was countercultural. And Paul doesn't use the Greek word for romantic love or the other word for reciprocal love. He uses the word agape, which most often was applied to God's self-giving love. It's a kind of love expressed in Ephesians 5.25, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are to give themselves up for their wives. Paul obviously has the cross in mind. Jesus loved the church by dying for it. The husband's the one who takes the bullet for his wife. He's the one who does the chores that nobody else wants to do. He sacrifices for her needs. He pays the price. He takes the initiative. He wears the burden of leadership. Despite what it says, there are plenty of Christian men who somehow manage to interpret the Bible as teaching that they get the family to all wait on them while they call the shots. Mark Maynell asks, how could any man finish reading this, imagining that he is the Lord of his little domestic empire? Christ alone holds ultimate authority over his home. Now, obviously, two short verses aren't going to cover all of the nuance of God's plan for marriage. The rest of the Bible does that. But God gives us a central prescription, the focus. Jesus undoes the patriarchy as wives gladly choose to support their husbands' attempts at leadership, and husbands prove their love to their wives by sacrificing for them and putting their wives' needs ahead of their own. Is that your vision for marriage? Are you cooperating with what Jesus is trying to do? Or have you convinced yourself that you have a better idea? If Larry King and Stephen Hawking don't have the answers, then we're not likely to do any better by ignoring Jesus' prescription for marriage. So we've seen how Jesus undoes the patriarchy. Next, let's consider how Jesus undoes the anarchy. He deals with the heart of what's broken in so many parent-child relationships. Jesus undoes the anarchy. Again, the instructions are brief and without nuance. Verse 20 just says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The goal, obviously, isn't to say everything children need to know. But if you're listening today with your parents, this verse is for you. It's simple enough that you could probably memorize it before I finish preaching. But its genius is in its simplicity. The primary way that you live out your faith in the home is by obeying your parents. The way that you express commitment to Jesus and your family is by listening to your parents. And the promise is that this pleases the Lord. 
When you answer your parents the first time they call as a way of telling Jesus that you love him, it brings pleasure to him. He sees you put away your shoes and share with your sister. He sees you offering to help and cleaning up after yourself. Every act of obedience that you do for Jesus brings a smile to him, and it brings blessing to you. Ephesians 6 verses 1 to 3 puts it like this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The Bible says little children should obey their parents and big children should honor their parents. And at some point between diapers and moving out, children shift from one to the other. Obedience just means doing what you're told. Honor is about treating your parents with respect. Honor is about expressing value to your parents and trying to learn from all they've taught you and make decisions that would reflect the best of their wisdom. That attitude toward your parents is key to your blessing, and yet it probably feels completely unnatural. Almost every children's movie seems to send the message that the solution to every child's problems comes in following your own heart and rejecting your parents' advice. And the hero of most children's stories always seems to be a handful to his parents. Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, has taken a lot of heat over the years for creating in Bart Simpson such a terrible role model for kids. When he was younger, he could laugh it off. Later, he was quoted as saying, I now have a seven-year-old boy and a nine-year-old boy. So all I can say is, I apologize. Now I know what you guys were talking about. Hear me when I say that you please God in obedience, not in self-expression. But parents need to hear this one as well. The Bible is saying here that one of the keys to your child's blessing lies in their learning to obey and then honor you out of love for Jesus. Just how much of a focus is that in your home? We often send the message to our children that the key to their blessing is the stuff we can buy for them, or the extracurricular activities we can enroll them in, or the academic achievement they can attain. It's in the family that these priorities and values are baked in. If you're not prioritizing your child's faith and character, you're setting them up to find their meaning in materialism, in achievement, or in pleasure. They might fulfill all your dreams only to find your dreams left them empty. Hear the simple wisdom of verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, it's important for parents to hear that priority. But verse 21 says how to go about it. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, we'd like a step-by-step -step manual, and we're essentially just given the executive summary. Just two words, really. But again, the genius is in the focus and simplicity. This is where parents need to place the emphasis. Don't get distracted thinking that the biggest challenge to your parenting is social media, the internet, or the sexual revolution. Your focus has to be, how do I seek children who obey me today, honor me tomorrow out of their love for Jesus? And how do I do that without provoking or discouraging them? The word provoke here means to make someone resentful or bitter. To become discouraged is to make them lose heart so that their motivation is sapped. The rest of the Bible fills in how you can go about that. 
the basic tension in parenting, obviously, is that children don't naturally want to obey their parents. As a result, some parents misread verse 21 as saying, don't do anything that your children don't like. As a result, the children never learn the obedience and they're robbed of one of the keys to God's plan to bless and mature them. But other parents don't read the verse at all. And they create resentment and bitterness in their children that makes them want to run in the exact opposite direction to the one you're pointing them. We create resentment in children, for instance, when we give them impossible expectations. We create resentment in them when we don't model the character we ask of them. We create resentment in them when we don't show the love and the patience and the understanding that God shows toward us. We create resentment in them when we discipline out of anger instead of clear, consistent expectations. We create resentment in them when we don't take time to introduce them through the scriptures to the God who alone can transform them from the inside out and provide the forgiveness and hope they need to go on. Jesus undoes the anarchy in our world, one person at a time. As children learn to obey and then honor their parents out of love for Jesus, and parents help them seek that goal in a way that doesn't make them bitter or resentful. So we've seen how Jesus undoes the patriarchy and the anarchy. Finally, let's consider how Jesus undoes the tyranny. Here we're looking at how Jesus seeks to transform the working relationships that dominate such a big part of our lives. We're looking at faith and action at work, how Jesus undoes the tyranny. Now, Paul addresses bond servants and their masters because such a huge portion of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. The word bond servant is used to distinguish Roman slavery from the African slave trade that started in the 17th century. There was a lot that was wrong with slavery in the first century, but it was much different than what was practiced, for instance, in the American South. First of all, it wasn't based on ethnicity. In first century Rome, there are documented cases of blacks owning white slaves and vice versa. Also, most slaves could hope to gain their freedom by the time they turned 30. And while some did manual labor, many of them were responsible for household management, teaching, business, and industry. And living conditions were so poor at the time, without a welfare system or any other economic safety net, many free laborers would sell themselves into slavery in order to get ahead financially. Because of that, the New Testament seeks to undermine and transform slavery rather than abolish it. Its teachings eventually led to a political solution that brought an end to slavery, but its focus is to change people from the inside out, start with individuals rather than structures. Now, the basic message to employees today is that the way that you work is important to God and a vital expression of your faith. In verse 23, Paul urges believers to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then in verse 24, he bluntly says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Slaves in an unjust world without freedom or respect were to find motivation and significance in their work by viewing their bosses as Jesus's foreman and doing their work for God's glory out of devotion to Christ. This is a teaching behind the quote that's attributed to Martin Luther. He was approached by a shoemaker who wanted to know how he could serve God. Luther's reply, make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. 
The point is, shoes don't have to have little crosses on them for them to glorify God. Make them well and don't overcharge for them. Would it change how you work if you believe that Jesus sees the work that you do as service to him? Would you give more and complain less if you believe the promise of verse 24, that Jesus will reward us for the way that we served our employers and sought to glorify him in our jobs? God put Adam and Eve to work in paradise because work matters to him, and it's one of the key ways we reflect his image in this world. Work like you believe it. Now, if the message to servants is that you're serving Christ and will be rewarded by Christ, the message to masters was that they'd answer to their master in heaven. Verse 1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Following Jesus means treating your employers with the knowledge that you'll answer to God for the way you treated them. The word justly is usually translated righteous. We're to keep one eye on God and his will as we relate to those whom we manage. The word fairly has a sense of equality. Treat them the way you'd want to be treated. Remember your equality in God's sight. Lead them with dignity and give them what they're due. And know that you'll be held accountable for the way you treated them. Even if you're the president of the company, you've got a boss in heaven and you've got a performance review coming. Now, the simple instructions in these verses have formed the basis for the transformation of societies wherever they've been implemented. And they offer a blueprint for the work that God seeks to do in our lives today. Jesus undoes the patriarchy, the anarchy, and the tyranny that exists in our hearts and lives as we submit to him. So where do you need more of Jesus in your life? Do you need to model more of Jesus' submission in the way you support your husband's attempts at leadership? Do you need to model more of Jesus' love as you make sacrifices for your wife to meet her needs and show that you care? Do you need to model Jesus' obedience to the Father in the way that you honor your parents? Do you need to model the Father's righteousness and grace in the way you train your children without disheartening them? Do you need to start seeing your employer as Jesus' manager? Or do you need to remember that Jesus is your boss? God has given us these blueprints to bless our lives, but he never stands aloof, grading us from the sidelines. Jesus is not only our example, but the one who gives us the strength to do what we otherwise couldn't. He's the one who comes to us in forgiveness and grace when we blow it. And he's the one who offers us his recognition and eternal reward when the people whose approval we deserve are slow to give it. You and I need more of Jesus in our lives and he's pleased to give us more of himself. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn to this passage and consider it, we confess before you that we don't have the answers. Our world doesn't have the answers. We've corrupted your word and your principles and made an ugly caricature of them. Help us to return to you. We need more of Jesus in our marriages, more of Jesus in our parenting, more of Jesus in how we honor our own parents, more of Jesus in our careers. And we pray, Father, for the strength that only Jesus can give 
to give ourselves with clarity to the simple prescriptions that you have given us. And as we do, we pray that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit. Bring your blessing. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you show us a little bit of paradise as we give ourselves to the, the will that you have revealed. Go before us, Father, and give us your strength. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this message has helped you to see how Jesus restores paradise on earth and giving you a vision for what he's seeking to do in your home and your career. If today's talk has stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, leave a comment, share the link, and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.